Good morning. Nice to see everybody this morning. I'd like to extend a special welcome to those who are attending by live stream through the video. Um, so it's always nice to, to see you folks. Uh, it's always nice to have somebody to talk to, but we also appreciate those who are attending from home and from other rooms on the campus. Over the past several weeks, I have been given the privilege of speaking on uh, the Beatitudes. Uh, in July, uh, I talked about the first Beatitude, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. And you may recall uh, that to be poor in spirit is to have a realistic perspective of who I am before a holy God. And as I've gotten further into the Beatitudes, I, um, I've come to appreciate that definition even more. Secondly, the second beatitude is blessed are they that mourn. It's just a few weeks ago. And um, we talked about um, how uh, the beatitude says, for they shall be comforted and how God brings comfort in mourning and how we in turn uh, can comfort one another and be comforted ourselves. Blessed, that was the second beatitude. This week, this week, I'm talking about the third beatitude, which blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And meekness, uh, as we'll get into this, is not timid. Meekness is gentleness. And as we watch the news and are engaged in the political discussion of the day, we live in a world that could use more meekness, more gentleness, a lot. And so I'm, gonna, I'm taking a little unconventional approach uh, this week, be talking uh, on some subjects that don't normally hear from a pulpit, and that means that your notes are different in the bulletin. Uh, there aren't uh, blanks to fill in. I know some people really look forward to filling in the blanks, uh, but I didn't do that this week. I gave you an instrument that uh, will make sense hopefully in a few minutes. Well, like the other Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, the third one runs contrary to the conventional wisdom, not only of Jesus' day, but of our day as well. We live uh, in a society of Horatio Alger stories, where rags to riches, where people pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. The conventional uh, culture says that uh, God helps those who help themselves and nice guys finish last. That God helps those who help themselves is often quoted by Hollywood in the Bible. It doesn't. That comes from Benjamin Franklin who stole it from the Greeks. And so um, that's not biblical. Just next time you hear that, you'll know that. Americans associate meek with weak. Meek is timid. Meek is mousy and hiding behind women's skirts. We currently don't think of meek as inheriting success. But when you look at the characters of the Bible who possess the spiritual quality of meekness, it has more to do with humbly putting, humbly putting other people's interests before my own. That humidity is expressed in gentle behavior. To, me, to be meek is to have strong determination. To be meek is to serve others. Paul defines meekness in Romans 12 when he says, giving preference to one another in honor, Romans 12.10. This is 
product of a, a renewed mind. In Romans 12:2, he talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds and then goes through a, a, a description of different uh, behaviors that, that would affect. Well, there's plenty of meekness revealed in the scriptures. In Genesis 13, Abraham, who had received the promise from God, is in a, involved in a contest, involved in a conflict um, with Lot, his nephew, over property. And so they sit on a high precipice somewhere, and they're looking over this land, and Abraham says, Lot, you take what you want, and I'll take what's left. Abraham was able to look down the corridors of time because of the promise that he had been given. And he knew that God had promised that he would bless the world through him. And so he had the comfort in giving Lot the better choice to be humble and to give preference to Lot in honor. Later in Genesis 50, there's Joseph who had been um, sold into slavery by his brothers. And you know the story, he, he becomes a, what amounts to the prime minister of Egypt and uh, his, their father dies. His brothers come to him in the end and they say, you know, our dad told us that you had to be nice to us. You couldn't kill us. And in Genesis uh, chapter 50, verse 20, Joseph responds, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Joseph saw God's hand over the long view. He saw how God had worked in his life to save Egypt and to Israel. And so because of that, he was able to respond to his brothers with gentleness, giving preference to them in honor. Then there's David in 1 Samuel 26 being chased by Saul, who meant to kill him. David had been anointed king by this time, and, uh, but Saul was chasing him around the countryside, and there were two separate occasions where David had the opportunity to kill Saul. In one case, uh, Saul was sleeping in a tent, and uh, they were able to retrieve his spear and his jug of water and went to a safe place and displayed them before Saul, communicating to Saul that he meant him no harm. Why are you chasing me? David saw God's hand over the long view. This enabled him to respond to the evil of Saul with graciousness and kindness, with gentleness giving preference to Saul as the Lord's anointed. What greater example is there than of Jesus himself? Come unto me, he says in Matthew 11, for all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Meek and lowly of heart. Meek and lowly of heart. This is the same Jesus who strung a bunch of ropes together and beat the stuffing out of the Pharisees and people and the tradesmen at the synagogue. This is the same Jesus who chastised the Pharisees for being whitewashed tombstones and sepulchers. Jesus was meek, but he was not timid. The action that he took at the temple was to defend his father's house is a house of prayer, he said, but you have made it a den of thieves. Jesus was not 
weak. Aslan is not a tame lion. There's a more contemporary example. There's a guy named Richard Bush, who was a Marine squad leader serving in the 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, on the island of Okinawa during World War II. And they were, they were um, beginning to uh, clean off the island, take it over from their enemies. And there was one machine gun nest on a precipice that they had to take. And so Bush takes the squad, and they, they climb this hill, and they cover the precipice, and, they, and Bush led the squad, and they took out this machine gun nest. Well, he was injured several times in the assault. And so they went to a what they considered to be a safe space uh, in order for Bush to be treated for his injuries. And while they were there, in the midst of the squad, a grenade landed on the ground. Bush took the grenade and held it to himself to absorb the blast and save the lives of his squad mates. Bush was one of four combatants in the Pacific Theater in World War II, all of them Marines, who survived such a blast. He survived it. It's amazing. There were four of them that did. Understandably, Bush received the Congressional Medal of Honor. Yeah, right, duh. And, uh, but his actions were humble. He considered his life to be less valuable than those of his squad mates. They were, he was um, acted on a fierce resolve a fierce determination. He gave preference to others in honor and was definitely not weak. To summarize then, we have the biblical definition of meek. It's humility expressed in gentleness, it's determination, and it's others focused and definitely not weak. Now what is GQ? It's not a men's magazine. Uh, for our purposes this morning. GQ stands for Gentleness Quotient. Gentleness Quotient. And it is a, um, an expression of meekness. In the next few minutes, I'd like to conduct an experiment with you on the subject of the third beatitude. A little different approach. Participants, participation is optional, of course, and, but you might find it interesting. In the First World War, there was a problem identified by the army of soldiers who would shoot their officers uh, in combat. The officer would give an order that the soldier didn't like, and so they'd shoot the officer. And it was apparently a significant problem. And so the army went to a group of psychiatrists, and they said, can you give us some kind of test, some kind of method where we could ascertain, we could predict those soldiers likely to react that way under combat. And so the psychiatrists did that. They developed a, um, what's called a personality inventory. And it began an explosion of personality inventories that you've all encountered in some fashion or another. Personality inventories like the uh, Minnesota, Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory, the MMPI. Some of you have uh, heard of that, certainly, and some might have even taken it. Uh, there's Myers-Briggs, which is probably the most com- common and broadly distributed 
and broadly tested. So all of that came out of this issue that the army had with, um, after the First World War. Now there's two ways, traditionally, that personality inventories have been developed. They are um, a theoretical model and they are a practical model. And I'll illustrate both. A theoretical model would be a group of psychiatrists sitting in a room, PhDs, no doubt, uh, Jungian theorists or um, uh, Adlerian theorists or Freudian, and they would sit in a room and they'd say, well, based upon this theory, we expect that this person under this circumstance would respond to this question in this way. And so they create a personality inventory essentially out of whole cloth based upon a theory. People who develop uh, climate change projections, who try to predict into the future what's going to happen with climate, also use a theory. And there are evolutionary biologists who will predict species variation based upon a theory. Now there's one characteristic in common with predictive models such as personality inventories or climate change uh, models that are based on theory. And that is that their conclusions are usually wrong and frequently spectacularly so. And so for that reason, personality inventories have kind of been given a bad rap, kind of been given a bad name because they're, they're just not that good. The reality is, however, that there are, there is a lot of junk out there for sure, but there are some that are quite good. And I've used them in my practice when I did management consulting. You can predict, for example, employees who are inclined to steal from you or not show up to work on time or inclined not to be coachable. You can assess sales aptitude based upon an inventory and it can be useful. You can't hire, you can't make a definitive decision that's actually illegal, but they give you something to talk about in an interview and it can be quite useful. A second way that you can develop a personality inventory is a prediction model is a, based on practical experience. So let's say, for example, that Jefferson has a problem with smashing mailboxes. We have, this, uh, we have this situation where you can't keep a mailbox intact for a week because it's getting smashed all the time, typically by high school boys or men between the ages of 16 and 20. And so we want to, we don't know who these person, people are, um, but we want to find out who among our young men have the potential to smash mailboxes. So we go to Salem and we identify a hundred guys who have smashed mailboxes and we develop a series of questions, a hundred questions around the subject of the postal service. We might as well talk about the postal service because they're in the news anyway, right? So we have this conversation with these guys and we say, um, what is it about mailboxes that seems to get your dander stirred up? And we, we create a, a, uh, an inventory that, that attempts to predict people who are going to smash mailboxes based upon what we know about people who already have, all right? So we get these hundred questions and we take 25 of the best predictors and we put them in an M MMPI. And we say, okay, we're gonna take, so Macintosh here takes the MMPI and I respond to those 25 
questions in a pattern very similar to what those mailbox smashers did in Salem. Now, I'm not going to be diagnosed as a mailbox smasher. You can't draw a conclusion or a diagnosis based upon that, but I can tell you that the therapist or the employer who's going to be having a conversation with me is likely to direct questions to me about my attitude toward the post office in general and mailboxes in particular. And that's a practical way of developing a personality inventory based on actual experience or collateral experience. Those tend to be more accurate. They tend to be more useful. I am suggesting a third approach this morning. <clears throat> based on your own assessment. I'll get to that in just a minute. In Africa, I wanted to tell you about in Africa, we have a ministry partner in, um, who is attempting, it's a Christian ministry, who is attempting to retrieve people from the slums. And they put them in a house um, in, in a countryside, and they give them a job. It's kind of like Habitat for Humanity. They help build their own house. They help build other people's houses. And they go to live in this community and there's a church there, and if they want, they can go to church. It's a really a great idea. The problem is they've discovered that there probably are people, in their first group it was more than half, there are a group of people who probably are better situated living in the slums. They, they uh, moved a group of people into this community, and, uh, and, and some of the men said, well, I'd like, you know, this is a fresh start for me. I really look forward to it. I'd like to start it with a, a, um, a new wife, preferably a younger model, a newer model. And so these, this ministry said, no, we don't do that. You can go back to the slums. And some of them came and said, well, I, I appreciate you giving me a job, but I really don't like work. It's kind of against my nature. I'd prefer to make my living by stealing things. And so they say, well, no, that's probably not the way we do things. You can go back to the slum. Some people are just better suited there. And so, but they were very discouraged. Here we are going through all this effort to build, to provide this new life for these people. And they're just, the, I talked with a sociologist for two hours one day, and he was just utterly discouraged. And so as a product of that conversation, we said, well, would it be possible to develop an inventory that you could give to people while they're in the slums to sort of screen out people who are likely to be work-averse or want to start new life with a new wife? And could, could that be possible? And so we started that conversation, COVID hit, and that's where it sits. This morning, we're going to create personality inventory by establishing a third method of design. No theory or external experience here. For those of you who are willing, I'd like to experiment with a personality inventory built around the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The inventory is found in your bulletin. Those are your notes for this week. The difference is you are the only administrator. Only you will measure results based upon your responses to the items. And only you or those you disclose will know your result. In the end, you will mark your score based on a 0 to 100. And this will be your GQ, your gentleness quotient. You, under the coaching of the Holy Spirit, 
are the highest expert about yourself. This is consistent with the teaching of Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, who said, but let a man examine himself. So let's get started. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture. It's, on your, it's also on your uh, sheet there. And you're going to be asked to, um, and then we're going to, um, there's a statement um, that is about yourself that pertains to a principle extracted from that passage of Scripture. And you are, and you're given a zero to ten, a scale there. And zero means that this statement is never true of me. And five means this statement is true of me as often as it is not. And ten is this statement is always true of me. If you're concerned about someone sitting next to you, perhaps a nosy spouse, peeking at your answers, you can just record the uh, answers in your head. And so you don't have to disclose. It was interesting. Last night, people were coming up to me and telling me their scores. I don't care. And, uh, and uh, it was, what was gratifying was what they planned to do with it. So I'm going to move through this fairly quickly. And if you're a person given to thoughtful reflection on such things, uh, you probably want to look it up later this afternoon. So here we go. First one. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. Item one. In the past week, I have inconvenienced myself to extend kindness to someone else. Years ago, I um, was irritated by standing in a grocery line, and it seemed like about every fourth or fifth time I went to the grocery store, the person ahead of me didn't have proper change. And so they'd be fumbling through their pockets, and they'd be fumbling through their purse as it was, and trying to find change. And meanwhile, all the people in the line were stuck trying to get through this line. And it happened several times in sequence, and each time I just start to burn. Why can't this person get organized enough to, to have a dollar to pay for their bubble gum? And so, and after that happened about the third time, I thought, well, this is stupid. Why should I get emotional because somebody else is disorganized? Next time it happens, I'm going to put a dollar on the counter so that that person and all the rest of us can get on with our lives. And so I did that. It happened twice. And then it didn't happen for 10 years. Never happened again until this week. I'm thinking about meekness and gentleness and the Beatitudes. And sure enough, there's a lady. I think God has a sense of humor, don't you? <laughs> Blessed are the meek. Okay, item two. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawler, but gentle, showing all meekness to all men, Titus 3.2. Item number two, I tend to avoid gossip and generally speak charitably about other people. Tend to avoid gossip and speak charitably about other people. Number three, but the wisdom is that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruit, without partiality and without hypocrisy, James 3.17. Item three, I tend to respond graciously to requests for my time or to negotiate a time when I can render assistance. It's making a personal choice, and I'm not going to say no to somebody who asks me for help. I'm going to either say yes and help them, or I'm going to say, I can't help you right now, but I can help you tomorrow. I can help you in 10 minutes. And then they make the decision about whether to wait for that or go somewhere else. 
Number three, I tend to respond graciously. Oh, okay, number servants. Number four, servants, be subject to your masters in all fear, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the froward, which means difficult to deal with. King James English there. To the froward, I, 1 Peter 2.18, item four, in the past week I have responded with grace to someone who wasn't kind to me. Who wasn't kind to me. We live in a angry time. And there's lots of anger that is in the, in the public square. The opportunity to respond graciously to someone who is not kind abounds. Lots of those opportunities. Number five, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Item five, in the past week I have resisted the temptation to diminish people who disagree with me politically. Ooh, that's not nice. Sticking the knife in the ribs with that one. Number six, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Item six, in the past month, I have extended myself to render comfort to someone going through a tough time. Speaks to our second beatitude about mourning. Item seven, in, the, in thy majesty, this is a psalmist talking about God, in thy majesty ride prosperously, because of truth in meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach wonderful things. In King James, that's terrible things. Interesting use of the word there. Psalm 45, 4, item 7, I tend to recognize and comment on gentleness in other people. It's a maxim of leadership that anything you want to, any behavior that you want to accentuate, you want to increase, you acknowledge, you reward it and you reward it financially, or you reward it with a compliment, with affirmation. Number eight, now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. Second Corinthians 10, item eight, I like to encourage other Christians in their faith. If I had that, if I were writing that right at this moment, I would delete the words like to, and just say, I encourage others in their faith, other Christians in their faith. Number nine, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Ephesians 4. Number nine, I tend to take advantage of opportunities to promote unity between friends, family, and the church. Promoting unity requires gentleness. Promoting unity requires the desire to give preference to others over myself. Number 10, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me up to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, Isaiah 61, 1. Item 10, I tend to seek out and exploit 
opportunities to speak a word of faith to people who are lost. Number 10. So there you have it. The Jefferson Baptist Church Gentleness Quotient Inventory. Sounds officious, doesn't it? Maybe we'll all get, we'll uh, start a whole new branch of personality inventories for evangelicals and we'll all be rich and famous. Or it could just be a different way to look at a beatitude. We'll settle, we'll settle for that. Now, if you're like me and you have taken this exercise seriously, you'll have come across several items that could use improvement. I could do better on this one. And that's the whole point of self-examination. Next slide. This is a normal distribution curve, also called a bell curve. I was going to call it a square curve to see how many people were awake, but it's a bell curve because it looks like a bell. Anytime you sample a group of people on an XY axis and you plot their responses, you, if you accumulate enough of them, um, typically a thousand or so, or several hundred at least, the responses tend to begin to rent, resemble a bell curve on this uh, on this chart. This is a perfect bell curve. They rarely look that perfect, but they generally it feeds, meets the definition. So your score between uh, a zero and a hundred is on the bottom. I've captured it at 40. I'm assuming that most people at least get 40 on this little quiz, uh, but not a lot. And um, uh, some people will get a hundred, but not a lot, maybe D. Um, and the mean, the average, is in the middle at 70. Okay, that's what that's, that bell represents. Next slide. So we have on this uh, bell curve an opportunity tail. And this is where performance improvement is based. The um, J.D. Power, Young, uh, um, Deming, Duran, Six Sigma is all based upon working on that little area, on that left area of that tail where there's an opportunity. In hospitals, that opportunity becomes, uh, is usually characterized as high risk, high volume, and problem prone. High risk meaning if you're going to do surgery on somebody, you probably ought to cut the right part, like the left arm versus the right arm or the correct arm. Um, high volume would be things you do a lot of, like administer medications. We administer a lot of medications in a hospital, and so you better get it right every time. And that becomes a focus of of effort, and then uh, problem prone would be things like when old when you, you hospitals admit a lot of older people, and when you admit older people to the hospital and you mess with their medications, it tends to make them dizzy and they become prone to falling, and so you put in safeguards, you put in practices to reduce the risk of falling for old people, high risk, high volume, problem prone. Um, <clears throat> Next, let's go to the next slide. What happens is if you work on those areas and you devote attention to those areas, the whole bell curve moves. It slides. It's called a sliding curve. You don't have, what that means is it's the Pareto principle applies. 80% of effects are produced by 20% of causes. You don't have to work on the whole bell to make improvement, you just have to work on the areas that, that, are the great, that pose the greatest opportunity for improvement, all right? So when you do that and you make an impact, or even a small impact in that area, that population, your whole bell moves to the right. 
In this case, I said, if we were to work on that collectively as a church, we could improve our, our score by two points. Now you're thinking, two points? I mean, who cares? What's the whoop? Well, if you're a hospital and you move that, you slide that bell by two points, you, imp- you noticeably improve quality. If you're a business and you slide that bell by two points, you increase your profits. If you're a sports team and you slide that bell by two points, you score more points and you win more games. Those of you who've seen the movie Moneyball, it's based on that premise. They were able to identify the crucial parts of their recruiting and they won more baseball games. So it doesn't take a lot to make a significant impact. In this case, this opportunity zone, if one person adjusts their score by just a few points, it will make a noticeable difference in that one person. If it's a group, like a family or a club, and you move that bell, you slide that bell by two points, the difference is remarkable. Wow. But if you're a population, if you're a church, if you're a community, if you are a sports franchise, and you move that bell by two points, the difference is profound. It's amazing. We live in a world that needs more meekness, more kindness. And if you and I collectively agree to take that fun little exercise and identify those aspects of our testimony, we can make a noticeable difference in our community and increase our ability to reach lost people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was at a conference a few weeks ago, I mentioned it before, with Josh McDowell, who wrote in one of his books, The Hardest Thing About Witnessing to an Unbeliever unbelievers in contemporary society is that the world doesn't see any difference between Christians and everybody else. And to show kindness in, and meekness and temperance and self-control and preference to other people before honor, in honor, in this kind of a climate will get people's attention. Let's go to the next slide. Christians are called to a higher standard, to be gentle, to be meek, and to give preference to one another in honor. Whether we like it or not, the world would judge us based upon how we respond. This is a picture of Jimmy Lai. Jimmy Lai is a Chinese national. Most of you have probably never heard of him. He immigrated to mainland, from mainland China to Hong Kong when he was 12 years old in the bottom of a fishing boat. I can't imagine that was a very pleasant experience. But he went to mainland China, he started working in, a, or in Hong Kong, started working in a sweatshop. And he get, gathered enough capital together and he started manufacturing shirts. And in time that turned into a huge textile business and um, he sold clothing of all types all over Asia. And then he, from that wealth, he opened a magazine. And the magazine was explosively successful. 
sold all over Asia. And from that, he opened a newspaper called the Apple Daily. And from that, that newspaper also became enormously successful. Jimmy Lai is a billionaire. Well, the Apple Daily, Jimmy Lai is also a Christian. He's a Catholic. He's a disciple of Jesus Christ. And in his newspaper, he has been, for the past several years, promoting religious freedom. Promoting freedom of all types, but especially religious freedom. And he is a living example of what's possible for a Chinese national to accomplish when given freedom to act. He has usurped it for himself. He wasn't given the freedom. He took it, took it and, and created something amazing out of it. And he's become a thorn in the side of his Chinese over, overlords. On one occasion, Jimmy was bashed in the head by a burglar, broke into his house, and he was thumped in the head by the burglar, and the, and the, but he remained conscious. And the burglars took his wife's ring. And as the story goes, his force was so strong and his commanding presence was so powerful, he told the burglar not to give his wife the ring back. And he did. It's impressive. He's also a billionaire. He became engaged in the struggle for freedom. He didn't have to stay in China. He has houses in Europe. He has houses in North America. And, and when the heat began to rise and the pressure began to build as the um, uh, Hong Kong rebellion began to percolate and boil, he could have left could have gone to the safety of one of his houses overseas. Or he could have toned down the rhetoric in the Apple Daily and have just gone under the radar. But he didn't do either. He maintained his resolve. And last, next slide, last uh, three, three weeks ago, August 10 of this year, he was arrested, hauled away in handcuffs, and he was charged with sedition and collaborating with foreign governments, which is a death sentence in China. That picture has been scattered all over Asia. And the uh, Asian nationals refer to this as those handcuffs as a badge of honor. Through all of this, Jimmy sees himself as blessed. His wife is his, in his corner, as she has always been, arrest was his destiny. That this is exactly what she signed up for the day she agreed to be his wife. She agreed to take him as her husband. Author McGurn in the Wall Street Journal observes how wonderful it would have been that some miracle intervened to deliver them from the terrible crosswords at which they have now arrived. But the faith Jimmy and Teresa share does not promise happy outcomes. It promises only that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we are not alone. Already the lies would tell you that there is nothing quite so overwhelming as learning that thousands across the world got people they don't know and will never meet God's people again who are praying for them. 
So we have the opportunity from this test that you've taken this morning to identify something that you would like to improve on. And I would encourage you, as we sit here in the presence of the Holy Spirit in this holy place, to ask the Holy Spirit to guide you and to give you counsel about what it is that you could work on and how you could make a difference in the world. I would encourage you to have a conversation with people with whom you meet in fellowship or in a Bible study and incorporate them in the conversation as well. And to write your commitment down and to ask people to hold you accountable. Together we can improve, even if only so so slightly, the impact that this church, this community, has on those around us. Jimmy Lai is one person, they are one couple, and a nation of a billion people. But Jimmy Lai is sliding the bell. He's changing the conversation. He's having an impact. Would to God that each of us, in our own way, heed the example of Jimmy Lai, that with gentle humility and fierce resolve, we would embrace our faith, give preference to one another in honor, and render service to Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, in a way that is noteworthy and observed by the world. Stand together with me, if you would, please. Last night, I suggested that if um, you um, wanted to um, have a conversation on this subject, or if you have never made a profession of faith for Jesus Christ, that you fill out that little card that's in the end of the pew, and I suggested that you place it in these little white buckets at the end of the aisle. I've learned since then that those are garbage cans. Probably not a good place to put them. Uh, we have black boxes in the back of the sanctuary uh, where you can place those. Uh, you know, I don't do this very often. You kind of have to learn as you go. And I would just encourage you, the, the, I always appreciate uh, comments that people give to me after a message, but the most extraordinary one happened last night. I don't, um, what I've talked to you about, talking about performance improvement in Belkers is not normal or typical for a Sunday morning service. But the application of blessed are the meek, of the beatitudes in our lives and the potential that that has to make a difference is extraordinary. And I had people come up to me and say, hey, I got a 70. On my own. People were telling me their scores. And they were saying, I'm going to take this one to my Bible study group or my accountability group. And uh, folks were sharing. They were elevating the conversation, which is the most honorable thing you could do. And I appreciate that. Our great God and Heavenly Father, I thank you again for the privilege that we have to be assembled in this holy place. I pray that each of us would be open and welcome to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and that we would take advantage of the discipline of self-examination and that we would um, commit to behaviors that increase the strength of our testimony and um, in a dark world, in a dark place that so desperately needs kindness and meekness and gentleness. I pray today, especially for Jimmy Lai and his wife, wherever they are, I pray that your peace would continue to abound to them, and I pray that you would uh, give them, continue to give them favor and strength in this bold 
expression of testimony. Dismiss us now with your peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming.